It's a joy to be present with you this morning as the Executive Conference Minister of Virginia Mennonite Conference. Uh, I try to get into all 66 congregations in a three-year cycle. So I was most likely here three years ago, and uh, Virginia Conference has affirmed me for another three years, so I will be coming back sometime in the next three-year cycle. Virginia Conference Assembly uh, happened July 18 through 20, and on the 18th, Thursday evening, we had a celebration or a beginning of a celebration of a 100 years of Virginia Mennonite missions being in mission work. And so throughout this coming year, Virginia Mennonite Missions is going to be celebrating some of the work that they have been a part of. Richard Keeler uh, went to Trinidad, coming out of Eastern Mennonite College at the time as a medical doctor, and in his lifetime eradicated Hansen's disease, leprosy, on the island of Trinidad. That's what missions can do. It can transform a whole culture because of the way people have been equipped with skills and knowledge and go to a place and offer those skills and knowledge in a creative way. On Friday night, Kevin King, the executive director of Mennonite Disaster Service, was present with us and talked about how we as Mennonites respond to disasters all over the country and around the world. We also launched a Seeking to Build a House in Clendenin, West Virginia, for the Walker family, a family of four, who lost their house in June of 2016 to the rising waters in the river next to their house. Thus far this year, Virginia Conference has raised $17,000 to assist that family in receiving a house. And on Friday... They actually framed the house on Lindale Mennonite Church's parking lot. And Monday of this week, they took it over on a trailer, just the frames, and have it already on the foundation, a roof on it, the house with windows, a door, and plastic around it, getting ready for HVAC, plumbing, and also electricity. And hopefully the family will be in before Thanksgiving. So it's an exciting project that our constituency have worked at together in order to make a difference for one family, a family who were once strangers to us, but now they're our friends. And that's another avenue in which service can make a difference, learning to know people and becoming friends and seeking to meet their needs. And I just want to say thank you to you as a congregation for your support of the conference and the work that we do through the conference office and through our congregations. The title of my reflections this morning is Responsible Discipleship. Lupi Alaguerra is a regional conference minister in South Central Mennonite Conference, and he lives in Texas. In my conversation with him and a number of other conference ministers this week, he stated that the Mennonite Church USA statement of protecting migrant children, which we just passed in Kansas City, was a good first step but very inadequate. He went on to say that this week's shooting in El Paso is a newsworthy event with a large number of people killed. But he said every day there's a single person killed at the border along the river that does not get news outlet attention. He wondered if we could do more as a denomination in giving witness to the way immigrants are being treated by our country. What responsibility do we hold knowing the truth 
about what is transpiring as a Christian community. Jesus will tell us in today's lesson that those who know have more responsibility than those that don't know. I want to offer two confessions concerning the lectionary text in Luke's gospel, and I read this in the New Revised Standard Version, and instead of servant, a nice soft term, it said slave. So my first confession, as a 21st century follower of Jesus, I react and recoil at two images in this text, slavery and the beating of servants or slaves. And even as we read this aspect of the text in a worship setting, it can give the impression that we subconsciously wink or approve of this type of relationship or behavior. So I want to be clear, I'm not affirming the context of Jesus' time for us today, but want to reflect on the truth that kind of lies behind that story. A second confession is that I'm not going to solve the eschatological question on how does Jesus' second coming occur. If your theological formation occurred in Franconia Mennonite Conference, where I came from, the all-millennialist point of view will be foundational for you. The end comes and it's kind of over. If you were significantly influenced by the revivalist and evangelical preachers, then the premillennialist view will be foundation for you. And if you are a baby boomer, you might remember the film A Thief in the Night or an X-Generation Left Behind series reflect this particular point of view with the end of time coming, a period of tribulation, and then a final experience with God with various arrangements of these sequence events. However, if you're a millennial then the pan-millennial point of view is operational for you. It will pan out in the end and it will be okay. This is an oversimplification, but I merely want to acknowledge I'm not solving this challenge in the text today. The scripture lesson today is about judgment and readiness, and I have translated this to mean responsible discipleship as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. Let's begin with a larger portion of material in Luke's Gospel, beginning of chapter 1. The context is that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and a crowd, and the text says, numbering in the thousands on the themes of judgment and readiness. In verses 2 and 3, he highlights the warning about hypocrisy. He goes on to say, that which occurs hidden will be revealed, and as all we have to do is read yesterday's paper to see Jeffrey Epstein is an acknowledged contemporary case, regardless of wealth, mobility, and power, what is done in secret comes to the light, and it has consequences. goes on to say, don't be afraid those who, of those who can kill you, but be afraid of those who determine your destination in the world or can cast you into hell, is the text explanation. There's the futurist proclamation. Disciples' witness about the Son of Man will correspond to how the Son of Man's witness to God is about you. goes on to suggest that any kind of blasphemy or denial of the presence of the Holy Spirit is sin, and that's something you may not be able to recover from. There's the parable of the rich fool. The man comes to Jesus and demands that he make the case for why his brother 
should share the inheritance with him. And Jesus ignores that and talks about what does it mean for you to sell your possession, gives alms, and make sure you know where your treasure is. Have your lamp lit for when the time is coming, when the master does come. And then Peter asks the question, what does this mean? And he says, to whom much is given, much is required. In the 21st century, whenever we see the master-slave or master-servant paradigm, we must try to apply that to what is the household experience that's being described in the text and how do we apply that to our worldview without mirroring what the actual experience is. So the learning from the one actually influences the other. So in this text, we see that the master goes away and the slaves are there at home working, some of them getting lazy. And what happens when the master comes home unexpected and finds the laziness? There's judgment. Jesus is the equivalent to the master. Disciples equivalent to the slave. The emphasis is those of us who have chosen to be followers of Jesus. What is the responsibility we hold on behalf of Jesus in the world? And too often in our own Mennonite context, we have ascribed discipleship to a kind of a personal discipline. To perfect the saints. To make sure that we think right. That impacts our behavior about what we do that impacts people's oppression about what we stand for and what we say begins to impact what people think and do. And too often, we have not taken up responsibility in the culture in which we live because we enjoyed the stability and being the quiet in the land. In the 21st century, as followers of Jesus, Can we still be the silent in the land or must we raise our voices about that which we see? As an alumnus of Princeton Theological Seminary, I've been intrigued with their year-long study asking the question, how does this 200-year-plus organization, how are they culpable in relationship to the benefits associated with slavery? What is their obligation as an institution as a result of their origin in 1812, and how was it that they, at the core, participated in the system? They acknowledged that the seminary was not built with slave labor. However, their donors, at that time, owned slaves. Leaders spoke openly about ending slavery and looked forward to the day, but didn't do much more than that. The Presbyterian clergy, as they're reporting it, promoted the idea of returning slaves to Liberia. And there are many other anecdotes from the larger report that you can find online. And they asked themselves the question in the end, how do we assist our African-American brothers in the 21st century knowing that we were culpable in the prior two centuries? And I believe they're going to create some kind of an endowment in order to support the education of African-Americans for ministry and mission. 
I ask myself after reading that, what about us as Virginia Mennonites? What is our legacy concerning our African brothers and sisters? While at the inception of Virginia Conference, there was a strong statement against ownership of slaves. But I wondered, did Mennonites of that time period hire slaves from other owners in order to assist their work in the field? And who received the compensation? While Virginia Mennonite prides itself at Eastern Mennonite University as the first college in Virginia to admit a black student on the basis of academic preparedness, we still have stories of segregated worship, communion, and perhaps other stories that are less flattering. What does it take for us to take responsibility for our own culpability in systemic racism in our own subculture called Mennonite life? As disciples, we are called to live and act in the ways of Jesus. And to be able to model that in our own setting. We are now full participants in society, no longer cloistered. We participate in the economic and social structures of our country and the global community. Can we see ourselves offering solutions to the broader culture and inviting their response? Recently, I received a statement about the possibility that capital punishment could be eradicated in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I went back and looked at our Confession of Faith, the article on peace, justice, and reconciliation. And in that article, in the fifth paragraph, there's a statement opposed to capital punishment. And so I signed that petition and said, yes, I want to represent my faith in this particular way. How are we as a group or a congregation responding to the challenges of immigration when the doors of our country have been closed to people coming here? What does it mean for immigrants to be targeted and to be seen as persons as unwelcomed? In mass shootings, What level of participation do we see ourselves? Will we become greater advocates for mental health where we increase access and care for individuals in our faith community and region concerning the availability of those resources to all people? While many of our Mennonite brothers and sisters enjoy deer hunting and own firearms, Can we call them to refrain from owning assault weapons for recreational purposes to limit how many firearms they own? Or how do we stand with migrant people in this time of duress? To whom much is given, much is required. We have been gifted with freedom, knowledge, experience, and a call to be active followers of Jesus. Is God calling us to do more than we have been engaged in order to shape our culture 
in a more Christ-like environment. While we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, can we move beyond this prayer into participation on earth to bring heaven to those who are being harmed? This is my prayer. This is my hope for us today. This is my commitment to walk forward, raising my voice in areas that appear to be dormant among us and yet need our attention desperately. If this society is going to be any better for our children than what we're experiencing right now. And we can do that as disciples of Jesus. Join me in prayer. God, we have been given this time and this space to be your disciples and to make a difference for your kingdom. We recognize that we need your spirit's presence. We cannot do this alone. We cannot do this on our own. We need our brothers and sisters standing together, raising their voice about what they see in the culture in which we are a part of. Not merely talking about it over coffee, but taking the step into the marketplace, into the country square, into the town hall, and saying enough is enough. For we know that in God's kingdom, all men and women are made in the image of God. We know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we lift our voices for those who have been harmed, for those who have been disenfranchised, to make room for the alien and the poor and to show the compassion that Jesus, as well as the Old Testament prophets, called us to embrace. On this day, give us the courage and the wisdom to know how best to take the next steps that are at our doorstep. And may we find that in so doing, life takes on a different kind of meaning, not just maintaining stability, but offering hope to those who have no hope. Friendship to persons who were once strangers. Understanding to those who believe no one heard. Grant us your spirit's presence in all that we're a part of. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.